Despite all my Sunday learning With the bad I kept on turning Till mama couldn't hold me anymore And I turned 21 in prison Doing life without parole No one could steer me right But mama tried, mama tried Mama tried to raise me better But her pleading I denied That leaves only me to blame Cause mama tried All right, we are back. Point of refer to a piece that originally appeared in Salon.com, authored by Kim Brooks, titled, What a Horrible Mother. Noted the piece. In the moments before the police and county prosecutors and Child Protective Services took over her life, Monique was thinking about dinner. Specifically, she wanted a baked chicken. She just left a birthday party and was driving home with her two daughters. By the time she pulled into the parking lot of a grocery store, her youngest daughter, then four, was taking a much-needed nap. Monique hesitated. She didn't want to wake her daughter up and bring her into the store where she was liable to be as cranky and difficult as anyone else who had been prematurely awakened. On the other hand, Monique was hungry. I'll watch her, said her older daughter, who was eight. She had an iPad she could text her mother from. It was January in Maryland, mild 45 degrees. A few minutes later, standing in the checkout line of the grocery store, Monique heard her name when paged, asking her to return to her car. When she got there, she found three police officers surrounding and asking her if she was the mother of the children in the vehicle, shouting at her, Do you know how dangerous this is? The two male officers went about the lengthy business of finding an appropriate charge, while the female officer continued to berate Monique, who stood stunned next to the car while her daughters cried. An hour later, they were still there, waiting to be released. When one of the officers asked where Monique's husband was, she told them they were separated. Well, he said... You need to have him come pick up the kids so we can arrest you. Moving right along. For Dawn, a young mother in New England, it was the same. A moment of convenience followed by one of shock. She had just picked up her daughter from the daycare when she remembered she was out of toilet paper. Her daughter, worn out from the day, was strapped into her car seat and busily enjoying what was her first ever Happy Meal. Dawn pulled up in front of a Rite Aid, locked the doors, and spread it inside. When she returned to the vehicle, three minutes later, a woman was standing by the window beside Dawn's daughter, who was still waiting comfortably. You're disgusting, the stranger said. What a horrible mother. I've called the police on you. I have your license plate number. I'm waiting here to make sure they arrest you. Now about the case of Courtney, who decided to get a fireplace gate to keep her three-year-old daughter away from the fire, about which she'd been growing increasingly curious about. When Courtney pulled up to the store, her daughter had fallen asleep. She had a little cold, Courtney told the author, and said, I wanted to let her rest. It was 70 degrees, but I knew it'd only be a couple minutes. She opened the windows and parked in the shade. She spent no more than 10 minutes in the store and was back on her way to her car when she noticed something odd. A woman, a stranger, standing near the hood of her car. A store employee on either side of her, all of them staring and watching. As Courtney approached, she experienced a moment of dread. Did something happen to her daughter? No, her daughter was fine. Courtney opened the back door, adjusted the little girl's blanket, unlocked the door, and got in. All the while, the women employees stood watching, saying nothing. A few days later, Courtney's husband was stopped by a New York police officer in the lobby of their building. The officer asked his name and if he was Courtney's husband. He said yes. The officer said his wife needed to call the police about an incident in a parking lot. She and the officer spoke for 30 minutes. The officer asked her to describe what had happened. She could hear the officer typing as she spoke. He asked her to hold for a moment. Then she said without emotion, at this point, based on what you've told me, I'd say there's a 90% chance we're going to arrest you. 
My question is, how have we gotten this insane? Author Kim Rooks said, these cases fly in the face of logic and the statistics of actual danger. A child is far more likely to be killed or injured in a moving vehicle than in a stationary one. If a child's going to be abducted, far more often the culprit is a family member, not a stranger. Yet, parents continue to be harassed and arrested for allowing children to play in a park unsupervised, walk alone to a friend's house, or wait in a car for a few minutes. She notes what makes this current situation worse is the climate of judgment that seems to have permeated the national consciousness. There's a moral vigilantism about parenting, as with all forms of vigilantism, that veers far into paranoia. Back to the case of Courtney. After she was interviewed by the officer, her lawyer informed her she was being charged with felony child endangerment. Oh, and by the way, she's been classified as a violent family offender. Her case drug on for months, as it does in America's disgrace of a legal system. Ultimately, Courtney was given one year of probation with supervision, a year during which she'd need to drive 100 miles each month to meet with a police officer. She was surprised at the first meeting when the female officer seemed very eager to dig deep into her case. When she told the cop she was a stay-at-home mom, it got nasty. The officer asked her how her husband felt about all this, if he was okay with her abandoning their infant in a hot car while he was working to support me. When Courtney explained that wasn't what had happened, her daughter was not an infant but three. She left for just a few minutes with the windows open. The officer shook her head, looked Courtney in the eye and said, I would never do that, ever. The author notes that when she later spoke with Courtney, she'd found she'd been released from the supervision component of her probation and had finally succeeded in having her daughter's case closed with Child Protective Services. She told the author how nervous she still was when, for example, they'd go visit a friend and they'd set up an air mattress and and her daughter squealed with delight saying, oh, I get to sleep in the closet. Courtney warned her daughter, don't say that at school. I don't know. This is pretty insane. I recommend you read the full article in Salon.com, dear listener. And does make me speculate what would happen today had an exchange that took place a couple decades ago taken place more recently. My sister's family was on vacation in the Rocky Mountains, and evidently while playing cards in a lodge somewhere, my nephew, age about five, took it upon himself to yell loudly so that everyone could hear, Stop beating me! All right, let's talk about some obituaries, shall we? All right, Mr. Millen, I'm sad to note that we've partially talked about some of these people going back to 2014 and promised in some instances to say a little more, and I guess we're just going to do what we can. We talked on last week's show briefly about, uh, well, Rachel Dolezal, you know, once identifies with being black, but she ain't. And we got Bruce Jenner, who says he's Caitlyn Jenner, and I guess he ought to know. I'm not sure how we classify Jim Bailey, who evidently passed away last week. Let's quote from his obituary. Jim Bailey hated to be called a drag act, famed for his uncannily accurate onstage portrayals of Judy Garland and Barbara Streisand, which he performed to sold-out audiences around the world in the 70s and 80s, Bailey saw himself as a character actor and something of an illusionist. From the first minute on stage, he said of his Streisand act, I look like her, talk like her, I have her mannerisms, and I sing like her. I am Barbara, not an imitation. The New York Times noted Bailey was raised in New Jersey and was a talented singer as a youth, trained at the Philadelphia Conservatory of Music, and moved to Los Angeles in the mid-60s to pursue an acting career. He landed few roles and turned to cabaret. A friendship with Phyllis Diller inspired his first drag character, but the real epiphany came when he found himself singing along to a Judy Garland tune on the radio. 
He recalled, my body was doing Judy moves. I thought, my God, I can sing like Judy Garland. And noted the Los Angeles Times, Bailey's homage to Garland became a sensation. One of his most devoted fans was Judy Garland herself, who even coached his performances down to her famous tics and gestures. A 1970 appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show turned Bailey into a Las Vegas favorite and led to concerts at Carnegie Hall on the London Palladium. You know, he used to frequently appear in San Francisco, and I'm sorry to say I never took in his act. Bailey sometimes took off the makeup and performed as himself, but his unadorned act won little acclaim. It's noted he didn't mind that audience preferred his, quote, illusions, unquote, especially when it came to Judy Garland. She died in 1969, age 47, and Bailey said, I feel like I'm continuing a career that shouldn't have ended. Speaking of Ed Sullivan, I think we noted uh, in passing the death of Ann Mira, unfortunately known as the mother of Ben Stiller. She should be noted uh, to posterity as part of Stiller and Mara, first-class comedy act, which I don't know made, made I don't know how many appearances on the Ed Sullivan Show. And they went on to win uh, many awards for the radio and TV commercials, which uh, they made together. This correspondent notes that she was a damn funny lady, and we note her sadness with, and we note her passing with great sadness. Well, I'm grateful for having seen the stellar work of Ann Mira, along with Jerry Stiller. I, I regret to note, regarding another obituary, that of Anita Ekberg, that I still have never seen La Dolce Vita. This is a deficiency in my cinematic education, and I think I should correct that this year. Noted her obituary, Anita Ekberg sealed her place in cinematic history with a single moonlit scene in Federico Fellini's 1960 film La Dolce Vita. Playing a hedonistic American actress, the shapely Swedish bombshell wades into Rome's Trevi Fountain wearing a strapless low-cut dress and urges her companion to join her. Marcello, she coos seductively, water cascading over her body, come here. While the scene looked steamy, the experience of filming it was anything but. The shoot took place on a February morning. And it turns out Eckberg's co-star, Marcello Mastroianni, was drunk on vodka. She later recalled, I was freezing. They had to lift me out of the water because I couldn't feel my legs anymore. Eckberg was born in the Swedish city of Malmo. At the age of 20, she was crowned Miss Sweden. The title came with an invitation to attend the Miss America contest in Atlantic City where, Life Magazine reported, she was the most photographed, most pursued, and most popular girl. She stayed in the U.S. to pursue an acting career and got her big break in 1954 when she joined Bob Hope on a televised show at the U.S. Air Force Base in Greenland. Hope introduced her to the G.I.s as the greatest thing to come out of Sweden since Smorgasbord. Turned out her film career wound down after her scintillating appearance in La Dolce Vita. Her later roles were largely limited to B-movies, and in 1979, she moved back to Italy and retired from Hollywood. She was twice divorced and lived the remainder of her life alone, but took great comfort in her former fame. I'm Anita Ekberg, and everyone in the world knows me, she said in 2000. That's very satisfying. And continuing on in our obituaries of women, we note the passing of Jean Nidditch. Some months back, Jean was the housewife who began Weight Watchers. Nidditch was born in New York City to a cab driver and a manicurist. She struggled with weight from an early age and grew into a chubby child, said the Los Angeles Times. She did partially blame her compulsive eating on her mother, noting that whenever I had a fight with the little girl next door, it was raining or something, I couldn't go out. My mother gave me a piece of candy to make me feel better. In 1947, after a two-year courtship that revolved around dining out together, Nidditch married a burly bus driver named Mortimer. She wore a size 18 wedding dress. Before long, she said she'd become a fat housewife, married to an overweight bus driver, raising two very overweight kids, 
with a fat group of friends and an overweight poodle. After being mistaken for pregnant, once an interchange with a friend in a, uh, in a supermarket, she enrolled in a public obesity clinic. Nidich found the prescribed diet, focusing on fish, vegetables, and fruit, appealing and effective, but the people that ran the clinic unfriendly and judgmental. It was then she decided to start her own weight loss support group. Finally able to share her dieting struggles with like-minded people, even confessing to keeping a secret stash of chocolate-covered marshmallow cookies in the hamper, she shed more than 40 pounds and reached her target weight of 142. Word spread of her success, and soon she was squeezing 40 people into her apartment for informal gatherings. In May of 1962, she teamed up with businessman Al Lippert, a group member, and incorporated Weight Watchers. Reportedly, at the first meeting in Queens, they set out 50 chairs, and 400 people showed up. Business boomed, and within four years, there were more than 200 branches around the world licensed to 100 franchises. When the firm went public in 1968, Nidich became a celebrity. Merv Griffin and Johnny Carson invited her to appear on their TV shows, and followers called her Jean the Queen. By the time she and Lippert sold Weight Watchers to Heinz for $71 million in 1978, the company had adherents across the globe. Reportedly in 2011, at age 87, she still weighed 142 pounds, her original target weight from decades before. When a reporter asked her for a secret, she said it was simple. Drop the damn fork. And speaking of dropping, we refer to the obituary of S. Donald Stuckey, who passed away last year. Back in 1952, Stuckey was a chemist working at New York's Corning Glassworks. He put a plate of glass into an oven, but the oven malfunctioned, and instead of heating it to 1,100 degrees, it shot up to 1,600 degrees. Stuckey opened the door, expecting to find a molten mess. Instead, the plate was intact, and it turned milky white. As he removed it from the oven, the glass slipped out of his tongs. It hit the floor and said Stuckey sounded like steel. The thing bounced and didn't break. He had discovered synthetic glass ceramics, a versatile heat-resistant material that would be used to make nose caps for guided missiles, nuts and bolts for NASA shuttles, and casserole dishes that could go straight from the freezer to the oven. Yes, S. Donald Stuckey is the father of Corningware. A prolific inventor, Stuckey also helped create photosensitive glass, and photochromic glasses used to make eyeglasses that darken in response to light. His best idea, as he explained in 1986, came when he was looking for something else. I still keep wondering, he said, what inventions I just barely missed. And speaking of glass of a much different sort, we note in an obituary the passing last year of David Greenglass. Greenglass was, in his own words, the spy that turned his family in. In 1951, the former army machinist confessed to helping pass atomic bomb secrets to the Soviet Union and testified against his sister and brother-in-law, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, in one of the most notorious espionage cases of the Cold War. His testimony sealed the Rosenberg's conviction, and two years later the couple were sent to the electric chair. Decades afterwards, Greenglass claimed he falsified a key part of his testimony to get his wife off the hook. I was a good father, a good husband, a good son, a good brother, he said, born in a time which tore people's souls. Greenglass was raised in New York City in a household that believed Marxism would save humanity. He was an ardent, preachy communist when he was drafted in 1943, but later lied in a security clearance form to land a job with the Manhattan Project. His brother-in-law, Julius Rosenberg, already a Soviet spy, recruited him. Finding sensitive information at the weapons facility in New Mexico was not particularly hard work, said the Los Angeles Times. Greenglass often saw classified documents on people's desks and learned a lot through casual conversations. 
In September of 1945, he and his wife went to the Rosenbergs' apartment where he gave them a sketch of an atomic weapon and some handwritten notes. His sister's fate, in fact, would turn on those notes. Greenglass was arrested in 1950 and pled guilty in exchange for testifying against the Rosenbergs. His wife, Ruth, claimed it was Ethel Rosenberg, not she, who typed up the notes the Greenglass had gathered, and Greenglass corroborated Ruth's account so that she wouldn't be indicted. The Rosenbergs, who denied everything, were found guilty and executed. Greenglass served 10 years of a 15-year jail term, then lived in almost total anonymity for decades under an assumed name. He broke his silence in 2001, telling an interviewer it was possible that his wife had typed the notes, but indicated no remorse for his betrayal. My wife was more important to me than my sister, he said. She was the mother of my children. And finally, I think we should expand upon our mentioning on the show uh, many months back of the passing of one of our all-time favorites, Tom Malyazzi. I'm not sure who was Click and who was Clack, but Tom and his brother Ray hosted NPR's Car Talk and, in fact, did so for 35 years. I'm very pleased to know that NPR is still airing the best of uh, Car Talk, and with 35 years of material, they probably won't run out anytime soon. It was and is a damn good show, and not just about cars. The brothers would sagely diagnose mechanical problems. I believe they both had engineering degrees from MIT. And, of course, bantered with each other about the mysteries of life as viewed through an automotive prison. Tom once told a caller, I like to drive with the windows open. I mean, before you know it, you're going to spend plenty of time sealed up in a box anyway, right? And yes, Tom Ayazi was the first in his family to attend college and did earn that engineering degree from MIT. After graduation, he spent several years working as a corporate engineer, but quit following a near collision with a semi-truck during his commute, realizing he was wasting his life in a job that he hated. In 1973, he and brother Ray, 12 years apart in age, opened a do-it-yourself car repair shop in Cambridge, where tinkerers could rent tools and shop space, and they later opened a traditional repair shop called Good News Garage. Radio found Malyazi in 1977 when WBUR, Boston's NPR station, invited him and other local mechanics to appear on a local talk show. Turned out only Tom Malyazi showed up. His brother Ray joined him the following week, and the partnership evolved into Car Talk, which got picked up by NPR in 1987. Noted the Washington Post, Tom Malyazi once led an anti-SUV campaign. Good for him. He favored different cars over the years, said the Post. At one point, he drove a 1963 Dodge Dart convertible. Later, it was a 1952 MGTD, his dream car, even though, as he said, pieces of it regularly fell off. And boy, as a former MG owner, can I relate to that. Baliazzi also said, I had a Toyota once, but it was too reliable. One thing I've always admired about the Maliazzi brothers is that again and again they op- had the opportunity to move into a commercial radio format and they always refused. They liked being a part of NPR. Although I think they did have an unusual arrangement with them where they had with the Shameless Commerce Division of their website, which did allow them to make money from their endeavor, which was aided by their appearance on NPR. And I don't know. I think everybody came out okay in that one. I like what their own website, cartalk.com, had to say about Tom. The site notes that along with the solid car advice dispensed on the radio show with his brother, Tom often took the additional role of philosopher king, life advisor, moral scold, and family counselor. He'd always ask guys who are in dispute with their wives or girlfriends one question, would you rather be right or would you rather be happy? Said Ray, in his own personal life, Tom always chose right. Said longtime producer Doug Berman, he and his brother changed public broadcasting forever. 
Before car talk, NPR was formal, polite, cautious, even stiff. By being entirely themselves, without pretense, Tom and Ray single-handedly changed that and showed that real people are far more interesting than canned radio announcers. And every interesting show that has come after them owes them a debt of gratitude. Added Berman, I think the body of work he leaves will definitely be held up with great American humorists like the Marx Brothers and Mark Twain. He was a genius, and he happened to use that genius to make other people feel good and laugh. And we won't argue with that. Let's take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We got so much more. Yeah.